Seated, please. Good morning. It is good to be with you. I always uh, told my preaching students at the Bear Valley Bible Institute that uh, when it was their turn to preach, they needed to just get up and preach. They had been preparing uh, all week long. They had been waiting for this moment. Everybody was anxious to get to lunch, so they needed to get up and not dilly-dally, but just preach. But it would be remiss on my part not to express the appreciation that Tammy and I feel for the warm welcome and reception that we have received while we have been here. Uh, though there have been so many kind remarks regarding uh, uh, the benefit of the weekend seminar, I will tell you that we feel that we are the ones that have been truly blessed and look forward to an opportunity to be with you here or somewhere else in the future and we pray that we have in some way returned that favor to you in our time together. But we thank all of you for that. Uh, Tammy and I have spent the last four years conducting marriage seminars on a somewhat part-time basis. And I'm always looking for examples or illustrations or stories about marriage. And sometime back I ran across some of the traditions that we practice as part of marriage ceremonies and what their origin was, where they came from, I didn't realize. For example, the um, little slogan, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, has a symbolic significance. Something old was a revering and honoring of the bride's past. Obviously, something new looked with anticipation to her new life. Something borrowed carried with it the idea of something of luck or fortune. And something blue spoke to or towards her chastity, which she had preserved for her wedding day. That's kind of romantic. Some, some didn't come about in such a romantic way. For example, the custom of a bride carrying a bouquet of flowers has not always been a bouquet of flowers. Initially, she carried a bouquet of uh, garlic cloves and garlic flowers. The idea was that it would scare away uh, all of these evil spirits. I think they changed that because it scared away everybody else too. I don't know about that. The idea of tying the shoes to the bumper of the car originated with the father of the bride who would, uh, as almost a transference of ownership, he would tie all the shoes there and say, take her, her shoes, everything, and go. You know, it was that kind of an idea. And there are those things such as the groom picking a bride up over uh, the threshold to 
uh, keep her from tripping, that that would be a sign of luck. There are those very romantic gestures. The symbolic passing of an emblem in the form of a ring, a ring which is placed so appropriately on the ring finger. It is called that because there is a vein that runs from the tip of that finger uninterrupted to the heart. It is in Latin the Venus Amoris. It is the love vein. And so the ring was placed there as a symbol of love. Now whether it's sand that's poured in a tube or a cross that's assembled or some other practice in a wedding ceremony, we may not understand everything behind the symbol but we understand the figure of what's being said. It's the figure of love, it's the figure of romance, it's the figure of family and commitment. We understand those pictures, if you will, without understanding every single detail about them. This morning, I'd like to look with you at least uh, briefly at the book of Revelation. I've often described it as one of the most frightening books in all of the New Testament. It is a book that is filled with figurative language, with picture language, and as such, by so many, it is not just frightfully uh, frightening, it is misunderstood, it is misinterpreted. It should not be a frightening book, the book of Revelation. In fact, in my opinion, it should be a book that is most highly prized by Christians. And perhaps, without, with the, the exception of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Revelation should be regularly considered by Christians in every generation. And the reason why is it's not some frightening picture that we can't understand, but instead, it is a love letter. Now, I know for those of you who know anything about the book of Revelation, you're saying, well, you know what? The idea of red dragon and bowls of wrath does not eke out Hallmark card, right? But it is a love letter. It is a love letter from a groom, Jesus Christ, to his bride, the church, to remind her that he belongs to her and she belongs to him, that he has not forgotten her and that one day he is returning for her. It was an appropriate message in the days in which it was delivered in the first century when John received the revelation of Jesus Christ and wrote it down because the church was in panic. They had anticipated a quick return of Jesus Christ and in their minds he had tarried and they began to be worried. At the same time, they were receiving persecution from a number of angles. On the one hand, there was a great Jewish persecution. Those that saw the message of Christ not as a fulfillment of the promise that had been given since the beginning of time and through Abraham and the prophets, but instead as something counter. And so there was a great religious persecution. It was that persecution that the Apostle Paul, once known as Saul, was a part of, seeking to do whatever damage to the church that he could. Then there was a great political persecution. The empire of Rome, recognizing that Christians held Jesus Christ as the ultimate king, that they evoked a pressure. It is that pressure that was stirred in the days of Jesus. And when the Pharisees uh, reminded the Roman Empire that Jesus and his followers were a threat that led to his crucifixion. And so there was this persecution from a political standpoint. And then, though it may be hard for us to understand in this generation, those Christians lived in one of the worst generations, culturally speaking, that there's ever been. For there, they would fight and kill for sport. 
There were immoralities of which even our society would turn in shame. It was a terrible time, and so Christians were faced with the plight that every person is faced with, and that is the potential of returning back to a sinful life. And so a message from Jesus Christ that says, don't worry, I still belong to you. Because you see, they had thought that maybe he had forgotten them. He says, you belong to me. He says, I have not forgotten you, and though I am absent in body, I am ever present working on your behalf. And don't let anybody fool you, I most certainly am one day returning. Be ready for my return. And since that is the message of Revelation, it was not only pertinent to those who were in the first century, but it is pertinent to you and I today. For we too live in a world that is filled with persecution against God's people, against the bride that belongs to Christ. There is a great religious persecution that comes even by some who call themselves followers of Jesus. Oh, they may make a designation such as, well, your church is intolerant, or you don't understand grace, or you're a legalist. There is a persecution even by some who are supposed followers of Jesus, and it is in the same as it was in the days of the first century and those Jewish individuals that somehow we have lost our way and we are not being God's people. There is a great political persecution. It seems as if every time legislation is made or the gavel falls in the courts of justice, it seems to be contrary to the very things of Christ. We wonder if we are still, as some have described us, a Christian nation. Are those principles of Scripture, those things of God, important to our leaders anymore? And we begin to feel it as a generation before that felt it at the end of a lash. We wonder if we are not on the verge of feeling that again. And though perhaps our generation isn't as detestable as it was in the first century, we live in a world that is full of wickedness. There is still great persecution in the form of evil and sin. A temptation to return back to the old ways, the constant battle against those things. And it may very well be that some, even in this auditorium this morning, are wondering, has Jesus forgotten us? Is he ever coming back for us? Is there any hope? Well, the book of Revelation is a letter that is written equally to us, in which Jesus Christ says, you belong to me, and I belong to you. I have not forgotten you. And though I am absent in body, I most certainly am returning one day for you. I work continually on your behalf. Be ready for my return. This morning, I would like to look at the beautiful bride of Christ as she is described in the book of Revelation. We probably could approach this from a, several different directions, for the bride is mentioned in a variety of ways. She is described in the early part of Revelation as an unfaithful bride in those so-called churches of Asia. She is described as a persecuted bride, some of the things that we just made reference to. She is a waiting bride, a preparing bride, and before the book is over, she will be described in her eternal state as the glorified bride that belongs to Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to talk about her beauty 
and the significance that ha that has for each of us. We are introduced to her in the very first chapter of Revelation. If you've not already taken out your Bible, I would invite you to do so or to grab one from the pew in front of you as we're going to be making kind of a, a superficial a dotting across the surface of the book of Revelation as we consider the subject. The book opens with this, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which shortly must take place, and he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John. Now, gentlemen, let me warn you about referring to your bride as your bondservant. That may not be well received. And in this particular word, it can be translated and probably should be translated as slave. I would discourage that use as well. But it is here that Jesus uses it, speaking of his bride, in an affectionate way. The idea is that we are bound or that we are connected together as tight as we can be. If you will, we, the church is linked to Jesus, is chained to Jesus, is bound to Jesus. It is comes from that expression similar to what uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, again in Romans chapter 7, as he speaks about the church being joined, about being bound. Uh, the idea is that those are wedding terminology, and so really what we're told on the very beginning, that the bride of Christ is the bride that belongs to Christ. But it's not just, uh, it's what he has to say about her that I think is most important. Turn towards the end of Revelation, Revelation 21. This is Jesus' description of his bride. John writes, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there is no longer any sea and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, listen, made ready as a bride adorned for her for her husband. Look down at verse 9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 11. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. Goes on to describe what many of us have believed for a long time to be a description of heaven. It is not. Revelation 21 is a picture of the bride of Christ. Yes, glorified. Yes, in her eternal state. But this is not a description of heaven. This is a description of a groom about his bride that she is beautiful. The question is, why does he see her as beautiful? Well, let's look very quickly. Revelation chapter 7. As I said, you're going to stay cool today because we're going to fan the pages back and forth as we look through this. In Revelation chapter 7, in verse 13, one of the elders answered me saying, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
And for this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night, and in his temple, and he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. That last terminology, spread his tabernacle over them, is wedding terminology. But these who are the church are beautiful to Jesus Christ because they have been made clean by his blood. That's the thing that makes the church the most beautiful is that she has been purified in that wedding ceremony when she, on an individual basis, was immersed in water for the remission of sins and came in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. She became at that moment the beautiful bride of Christ having been cleansed by her blood. It is as if she stands now adorned in white having been cleansed from her iniquity. When we became a Christian, we became the bride of Christ. We were added to the church as the church is the very bride of Christ. But the church is beautiful because the individuals within it have been bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus. But it's not just that. Look over at uh, Revelation chapter, or look back at Revelation chapter 3. Here we find an ongoing cleanliness, if you will. Notice in this discussion of these, with these seven churches in Asia, in chapter 3 and verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase their name or his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Very quickly, look over and adding to that in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. The idea here is that these who were once made clean by the blood of Christ have been continually kept clean. Verse 11 and they, that is the bride, overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of the testimony. Listen, and they did not love their life even to the point of death. The idea is this. John writes that Jesus describes the church as those who, in spite of tribulation, tribulation is not a set point in future time. It is the continual state of those who are those that belong to Jesus Christ as they are continually being bombarded with this tribulation. But in spite of that, they have remained clean. I want you to imagine it's a wedding day. You know, it's always a great day. Everybody's all dressed up. There's great celebration, and they have a reception often that follows. Imagine it's about time for the bride and groom to leave to go on their honeymoon. The groom realizes that in his haste to get dressed that he's left his wallet in his street clothes in the room where he changed. And so he races back into that room and he bursts in his, uh, in his uh, uh, excitement. He bursts into that room and there he finds his new bride in the arms of an old boyfriend. Now I'm not talking about just the kind of congratulatory embrace. I'm talking about an intimate embrace. Can you imagine that particular scene. How disheartened he would be that on this of all days that she had made that commitment to him that she would be in one of the side rooms in the embrace of another man. Well, the whole picture that we have from the book of Revelation is just that. Not only did the bride dress herself in white, 
Not only did she at her conversion, if you will, make her presentation as one who was ready to become the bride of Christ, in spite of all of those former loves, those former sins, those former iniquities that might be seeking to lure her away, she, the bride, has remained clean and faithful to him, readying for his return. In fact, in Revelation 19, we see another aspect of why she's beautiful. She is beautiful because she's clean by the blood of Christ. She is clean or beautiful because she has continued to remain clean. Now listen to verse 7 and 8 of Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Listen how she has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, if you've ever been anywhere around a bride that is preparing for her wedding, you know that she is obsessed with it. I mean, my daughter was all about the cake and about the flowers and about the gowns and about the ceremony. We could not get her off of the subject of wedding. In fact, she became such a tyrant about the subject that on the day of her wedding, I looked to her groom and I said, do you take this woman? And he said, I do. And I wanted to say, are you sure you do? <laughs> but she was obsessed with preparation and the church, the bride of Christ is obsessed with readying for his return. And the work that is described here is the righteous acts of the saints. For many, they believe, for many, they believe that the work of the church is to dig a hole, put a barbed wire fence around it, buy all the spam that they can, and wait it out till Jesus comes. That's not the description of the working church, the preparing church, the beautiful church that belongs to Jesus Christ as we see it in Scripture. What we find is that there is a church that is not only fleeing iniquity, but pursuing righteousness. And that's not just goodness, that's good workingness. That's doing what... Do you understand that there's no good reason for the church to still be here in the earth, on the earth, were it not for the work that needs to be done? For a groom to put his bride at potential risk by leaving her on a sinful world after she's made a commitment to him makes no sense except for the fact that there is something to be done before he returns. Namely, to share the good news of Jesus Christ that they too might be the bride of Christ. To show love, to show compassion, patience, grace, mercy and all that we do. To be about the work of the of the groom Jesus Christ. She is beautiful because she is adorned in white. She is beautiful because she is maintaining her purity. And she is most certainly beautiful because she is continuing to work, readying herself for the return of Jesus Christ. But if you've ever been to a wedding, you know, the ceremony and those first familiar bars are played of that wedding march and out of honoring the bride, everybody stands up and they look back at the back of the auditorium and as the bride walks in in that beautiful dress and those flowers. I, I mean, I don't know that there's a bride or a woman that is more beautiful than on her wedding day, unless she's my wife and then she gets more beautiful every day. There we, is that right? Okay. Uh, so here's the deal. 
If you ever have the opportunity, it's hard to do, but when the bride begins to come into the back of the auditorium, turn around and look at the face of the groom. You will see his face glowing. You will see his eyes welling up with tears. You will see as if he is with bated breath anticipating what will seem like an eternity for her to walk to the front to become his bride. You will see the beauty of the bride in the face and the reflection of, or the reflection of the groom's face. When it comes to the beautiful bride of Christ, it really is just the opposite. The thing that makes the bride most beautiful is the fact that she is a reflection of the groom, Jesus. Look back to who he is in Revelation chapter 1. He describes himself beginning in verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 8, he is, or I am, the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. The bride is beautiful because she belongs to Jesus Christ. And there is nothing more beautiful than him. And so when we recognize that we belong to him, then we begin to look like him and act like him and think like him and talk like them. Why? Because we are in fact a reflection of the groom to whom we belong. And so it is that we have this beautiful picture of a beautiful bride. He, that is Jesus Christ, is most faithful. Look at verse 7 in the context where we just read. Here's a promise. Behold, he, that's Jesus Christ, the groom, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so, amen. What's the point? The point is that he is returning for her. He has made a promise, a promise of God that he is coming back, and that should be a great encouragement to us. He loves the bride. He gave himself for the bride. The bride needs to remind, be reminded that if he did all of that for her, what wouldn't he do for her? But I think about the occasion in John chapter 14. Jesus has revealed to his disciples that he is going to be, uh, going to Jerusalem, is going to be con uh, crucified, and they are more than forlorn. And Jesus looks at them and he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go to prepare that place, I will come again that I might bring you unto myself. It reminds me of an old motion picture that was based on a Broadway musical called uh, The Unsinkable Molly Brown. It is a fanciful historical telling about a man by the name of John or J.J. Brown whose claim to fame was an empty hole in the ground that he thought was his silver mine and a young woman by the name of Margaret or Molly who came to town looking for fame and fortune and well she caught the eye of Johnny Brown and Johnny made some advances towards her and ultimately her response to him was you gotta be kidding me. 
I came for somebody special and you ain't it. I'm going to marry a man who can provide for me. I want to marry a man who's going to build me a house that will keep me, uh, uh, keep the, the snow off of me. And I want inside that house, it's going to have a potbelly stove to keep me warm. And it's going to have a place there for my paw. It's going to have a, a room and a bed and a jug full of milk or Pepsi or something. And she wanted that there. And she goes, and then I'm going to have me one of those big brass beds. Well, as the movie comes to one of its crescendos, Johnny takes her out on a ride and takes her up to her, his claim. And when they get there, there's kind of a little lump in the throat because he has built that little house for her with a good roof on it to keep the snow off. And as they walk into the front door, there over in the corner is a potbelly stove ready to keep her warm. Goes into a room, there's a humble bed with a humble table, but on it a jug just waiting for her paw. And then you go into the master bedroom and there, having been drug all the way up the mountain from town, is that big brass bed. And it's his expression to say, Molly, I'll do anything for you. It is the words of Jesus that come to the book of Revelation that says, I died for you. What makes you think I wouldn't do anything else for you? I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. Until I return, continue to let, uh, let me provide and protect you in every way that I can. Look at the promise that is given, chapter 2 and verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, that's the one that stays prepared and ready to the very end. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, the paradise of God. Now this may not echo as loud as it did for those in the first century, for us, those of us in this century. But the idea of paradise was a sacred and special one. It went all the way back to the events in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 in which God created man and God put him in a paradise and God walked along with man. It was the desire of those of that day to have that back. In fact, I am convinced that there is a God-sized hole in every person that was made when we let God out of our life. When Adam and Eve ignored the instruction of God and ate of the forbidden fruit and demanded more than the everything that he had given them, there was a vacancy, a desire that burns in every man and every woman for that relationship. Now, they try to fill it sometimes with alcohol. They try to fill it with drugs. They try to fill it with, with uh, prosperity. They try to fill it with power. They try to fill it with recreation. And you know what we find? That no matter how much of that goes in, the hole just remains. And the reason why is because there's only one thing, a relationship with God that can fill that hole back up. And so there is the promise that those who are faithful to the very end, the bride that keeps herself pure and readies herself, is going to inherit again, return back to the paradise of God. Our time is really running out quickly, but I don't want us to leave here without noticing something else in the text. You'll note the description that is given in verse 7, that in that paradise there is the tree of life. To understand that, I turn you to the very end of Revelation. If you will, uh, to uh, Revelation um, uh, 22, I want you to see how this is described in verse 2. 
Uh, let me, let's read verse 1 for sake of context. And he showed me a river, the water of life, clear, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb, and the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. If you turn a page over, at least in my Bible, you'll notice in verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have right to the tree of life that they may enter by the gates into the city. This particular expression, tree of life, is not really rendered literally. The translators have used a little bit of interpretation. The literal translation would be dry timber. You'll find it, for example, in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 13. Speaking of, they're probably translated as cross. For in fact, what is being spoken of here is those dry timbers that were constructed into the torture stake that held our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when he was offered as a sacrifice, shedding his blood for the remission of sins that we might be reconciled through him to God. It is the place in which the wedding invitation went forth. And so what we have is not that tree of life that we can eat from and be preserved physically, but instead it is the access through our obedience to Jesus Christ as the bride of Jesus Christ to the cross of Christ that preserves us not only in this life from uh, sin, but ultimately from everything in the next life. It is a promise of Jesus Christ to his bride. Now if we were to look at greater length at the book of Revelation, you will find that there is an additional promise that runs a thread throughout the book, and it is a promise for those who are not part of the body of Christ, those who are not his church, those who are not his bride. It is a promise of punishment, an eternal punishment, an eternal ongoing punishment. And so Revelation serves us well today by way of application in fact, I don't think that there's anyone that can be excused from the message of Revelation. If you are one who has not yet become a child of God, one who has not become obedient to the point of being immersed in water for the remission of your sins, you are not the bride of Christ. That's not my description. That's Jesus' description. You've not been reconciled to God. You've not been, had your sins remitted. You have not been added to his church. And so today there is a great invitation for you to become the bride of Christ. As long as there is breath still within your lungs, the invitation of Jesus for you is open. But it's also for those who have at one point in time obeyed the gospel, come in contact with the blood, been added to the church, become the bride of Christ, and yet some way along the way they have returned back to their former loves to the things of the world, the things that spot them. Well, the beautiful thing is you don't have to remarry Jesus, but repentance allows you to access the blood again to make yourself as clean as you were on that wedding day. There is an invitation for those perhaps who have said, you know what, I obeyed the gospel and I've been keeping free of wickedness, but I've been somewhat dormant in my faith. I haven't been doing anything for the kingdom. It's not that I've been a bad person, I just haven't been a good person. It's not that I'm involved in wickedness, I just haven't been involved in the righteous and good works that I'm supposed to. Again, there may be a degree of repentance, but probably just simply a recommittal to say I'm going to return to being ready for the returning of my groom. 
There's even an invitation for those who have become children of God, the bride of Christ, who have fled wickedness, who are working hard diligently and daily, but somewhere down deep inside have wondered, is it worth it? Has Jesus forgotten us? Is he ever coming back? The message of Revelation is clear. It is a promise of Jesus Christ, the groom, to his bride. It is a promise in which he says, you, church, belong to me. And I, in fact, belong to you. I have not forgotten you. And though I am absent in body, I am constantly working on your behalf. And do not let anyone fool you. I am returning for you one day. Be ready. There is no better way to conclude than with the invitation that is given in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. And the spirit and the bride, they say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost come. This morning, if there's a way that you would like to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ to become his bride, to return from wickedness back to him, to recommit yourself, or perhaps simply for the prayers of strength as we continue to work together and there's any way we can help you, won't you come forward and let us know as we stand together and sing. Praise.